You are listening to the Visualizing War podcast. In each episode, we talk about representations of war in art, text, film, and music. With new guests each time, we look at how people have described or imagined war in different periods and places. And we discuss the impact which war stories have on us as individuals and societies. Hello, my name is Alice Koenig. And my name is Nicholas Vieta. And we co-direct the Visualizing War project at the University of St. Andrews. Our guest today is Lady Lucy French, founder and chief executive of Never Such Innocence, a project which gives children and young people a voice on conflict. Lady Lucy's career has revolved around three pillars, charity work, education and the performing arts. Among her many roles, she sits on the board of theatre company Actors of Dionysus, and she's a trustee of both the Commonwealth War Graves Foundation and the Great War Symphony, an extraordinary musical commemoration launched to mark the centenary of the First World War. She has a personal connection with that war. Her great-grandfather was Field Marshal Sir John French, who led the British Expeditionary Force at the start of the Great War. Lucy, hello and welcome to the Visualising War podcast. Hello, thank you for inviting me. So we want to ask you lots of questions about Never Such Innocence, a project which connects in so many ways with what we're trying to do with our Visualising War project. But I'd like to start, if I may, just by asking you about that personal connection that I've just mentioned, your grandfather leading the British Expeditionary Force in the Great War. When you were growing up, what kinds of things were you told about your great-grandfather's wartime experiences? And maybe how you can tell us how that perhaps shaped your own understanding of war. Yes, no, absolutely. Um, I found out from an early age about uh, my great-grandfather and his exploits, if you like. Um, I don't know, I, I was told stories of his, his work in the Boer War and, of course, the First World War. And I think, for me, what really inspired me was his work with his men, with the soldiers that served under him. They loved him. My, my aunt, my lovely aunt, who sadly died um, a couple of years ago, used to take the old contemptibles back to eat each year for them to reminisce about their days um, with French. And I think he, he put his men first. He really wanted to look after them. And, and that really came through very strongly for me. Um, and I think it, his work right the way throughout, through his career demonstrated that it was it's about people it's about relationships it's about building trust and I think it was a great inspiration. Thank you that's really interesting to hear that you know growing up with those stories and getting that insight um, must have been really really quite extraordinary. So there's obviously a very personal connection for you to this to this project and now I'd quite like to hear more about how that developed into that project in the first place so uh, how did you get the idea for uh, Never Such Innocence your project was on World War One uh, initially but now you're giving children a voice a chance to contribute so uh, how did this develop and uh, maybe also uh, explain a little bit what's behind the name of the project. Yes, absolutely. Um, I remember very clearly, I think I was at home listening to the radio and I heard uh, the then Prime Minister David Cameron in just, I think, sort of December 2012, talking about um, the forthcoming centenary of the Great War and how we should all do something. And I felt that this was a very good idea and that perhaps I should do something. But I, it was identifying what 
um, having worked with young people um, in the work that I did in theatre, I thought it was very important that we gave young people the opportunity to play their part in centenary. I thought it could be so easily taken up with academics, historians, grown-ups, all having a view on what that war meant uh, and what it meant today. And I think I thought it was important that the custodians of the future were given as much of a voice during that four-year period. And so we decided to set up a charity, myself and a, a wonderful uh, band of sort of brothers and sisters who um, came together to create Never Such Innocence. The name came from one of our trustees, the wonderful Dr. Martin Stephen. He wrote a very, very successful anthology of First World War poetry uh, entitled Never Such Innocence from the, Larkin, the Philip Larkin poem, 1914. And it just seemed the perfect name for the charity that we were trying to create. We were inviting children, the innocent, to really reflect on what the Great War meant. And so it all sort of came together in, in, at extraordinary speed and ease, really. We had no idea in that sort of first, first year setting it up what the response was going to be like. We knew that we wanted to create resources reflecting on the conflict but giving a very unbiased view of what that conflict meant and we devised these but we had we first sort of trialed it in England in schools in England and thought we might get a few entries that'd be very nice but actually we were overwhelmed with entries from England in the, so then in year two we thought we'd be bolder and we'd reach out across the United Kingdom and that worked incredibly well. We started getting, you know, thousands of engagements from young people. And then entries started coming in from around the world. And we realized that this really was sort of igniting something in these young people, in these communities around the world. And so it, it started to grow. That's That sounds amazing. And so, you know, growing from this sense that you want to give young children and, and young people a voice and just finding out that they really want to have a voice and have a say and, and giving them that space. I think it's interesting that you wanted to make sure that whatever you put out there wasn't leading them, wasn't guiding them, was was opening up a space for them to think, react, respond and and speak, tell adults, tell other people what their view of the Great War. So initially it was about the Great War, wasn't it? Yes. And it would be really interesting if you could just recap a little bit what, what kinds of entries you received in those first couple of years, what themes emerged from them, what did children want to highlight about how they felt about the Great War you know, if you've got some specific examples to share with us, that would be fantastic. Yes, no, absolutely. I mean, I think it was really interesting. A lot of the young people reflected on personal stories, um, they re remembering grandparents, great grandparents, uncles, aunts. We also had a lot of young people reflecting on the horror of war, things they'd obviously learnt in the classroom, seen on the television. And so that we had a lot of gore, a lot of mud, a lot of blood, a lot of blood and guts um, but we also had a lot of young people questioning why why had it happened uh, and and trying through their poetry through their art to understand it and I thought we we I mean we found that very enlightening actually reading the entries that were coming in we started the project inviting 11 to 16 year olds to participate thinking that anybody younger than that wouldn't 
be that interested, wouldn't want to use resources to reflect on a conflict like, like that. Um, but to our surprise, we suddenly started getting huge quantities of entries from primary school children. And, and, and really wonderful. I mean, incredibly powerful entries from primary school children. And so we then the following year for so the 15-16 competition, we up the we changed the age range from nine to 16. And that worked really, really well. We had entries from right the way around the UK. We had children that suffered, had sort of SEN challenges. And we were delighted to really reach out to as many special schools, communities that we could. We wanted to create something that was absolutely inclusive of everybody, every voice, every background. And I think actually that worked very well. We were tiny, we still are a tiny, tiny team, but we made sure that we reached out in a very personal and direct way to schools so that they felt that what those children had to say was really, really valuable and important. One of the poems that I think really struck me from year one came from a young man he was in the age 14 to 16 category that um, suffered from quite severe autism he ended up winning a prize in our first award ceremony and his he and his parents came to the awards and they were visibly moved by the extraordinary work that this parent's son had created and he'd had a problem expressing deep emotion I'd like to just share his poem with you because I think it really is extraordinarily um, moving It's called What Happens Next. What happens next? Will our lips meet again? I long to feel you, but know in my heart this could be the end. Are you listening, my darling? There is hate and selfishness, but I am only full of love and hope. That from a boy that had had difficulty expressing any kind of emotion was an extraordinary response to loss during the First World War. And he went on to really achieve great things. So that was a phenomenal um, start to our story. And we've had entries reflecting, and we had a lovely young girl from New Zealand who was inspired by her great, great, great uncle who served in the First World War. Um, And so we were starting to build a real picture of the impact that conflict had had on today's young people. And so we initially, it was just a poetry and art competition. Then we introduced song in 2016, which worked very, very well. It opened up a whole new range of opportunity for young people to express themselves. And I think it was, it's really all about young people that we work with, the opportunity to feel that their voice is important and powerful and can impact the future, can impact um, world leaders. Absolutely. I mean, what you've just sketched there is is a really important, really interesting testimony to the way in which this project is not only helping people explore those big questions, why do we fight, um, but exploring, as you say, their personal connections and their personal responses, as you know, like you, many, many people even today, grow up with some kind of personal family memory, stories that are handed down. Mm. So there's that very personal element, but then there are these sort of these bigger questions. I just want to mention that listeners can obviously find out a little bit more about the project on the Never Such Innocence website, but you can also look at some of the entries which Lucy is talking about here. There's poetry and there's also art on a blog on the Visualising War website. Uh, yes, obviously we'd, we'd like to know more about how the competition worked, but before we move on to that, what, one of the things that um, sort of comes 
comes out of what you were just saying for me and for the project is that we, we are obviously quite interested in how stories come into being, how stories are sort of give rise to more stories and how there's a memory culture that's created. The work that you're doing with these children is so particularly interesting, not, not only because, you know, we, we, we see the response of, of these children, but because we know these kids have not had any direct experience of World War One, They can't have had it. But nevertheless, gives insight into a very kind of fascinating, diffuse, multimedial memory culture that's out there that makes it possible for uh, children who are many, many generations removed from the events they're talking about to respond to these. But at the same time, we also see how thinking about a war that they weren't involved in gives then rise to new creative stories. And kind of there's this proliferation of storytelling that comes out of a proliferation of stories in different media that uh, to me is really striking. It's ex exactly the kind of thing that we're interested in, in the project uh, in. Just following up from that, I, I would also say, I think, you know, I love the fact that the title of the project connect a Philip Larkin poem through to the new storytelling that children are themselves doing and empowering them to feel that they're part of a long tradition of memory, storytelling, processing, processing of experience. Yes, I mean, I think the, the thing that really strikes us, the way in which young people perceive conflict and the way in which they want to share their thoughts and their reflections on those events. And um, you see some quite shocking images, very sort of brutalist poetry um, descriptions, um, but also great understanding, great sensitivity. And I think, I think it's fascinating to, if you like, assess, to reflect on how young minds process these very, very violent tales, these tales of, you know, destruction. I have to say, I mean, actually, in our, in our book, the, the book that we published for the end of the centenary um, of children's response um, to, to the centenary through poetry, art and song, our president, um, Vice Admiral Sir Tim Lawrence, says in his sort of forward that adults take heed. You know, what these young people are saying is incredibly perceptive and actually, in many ways, more perceptive because they don't filter things in the way that we, we are conditioned to as adults. They say it as they see it. And so you get very raw emotion coming through and it's incredibly powerful. That's also something that reminds me of what you were saying at the beginning. Um, one of the things you wanted to do with the project is to not to restrict the voice to the people who have the voice already, the adults, and but give a voice mm. to as many people as possible. And I think it opens up a new whole, whole new way of thinking about how we think about reactions to war, narratives about war, once we take the children into account, because I think you're right, there's a, there's a tendency, you see them as, as victims, um, of course, you see them on photographs and uh, in video clips as victims, but they're very rarely kind of taken seriously as participants in the conflict who process the conflicts and to think about them and who have something important to tell about those conflicts. I, I find that's it's a, it's a fascinating new angle also for me, because, you know, this is this is our bias that we have this focus on the adults. Well, it's interesting. It's very interesting that you say that. I We had a uh, a, a wonderful letter from Prime Minister Boris Johnson in February last year um, that said of the children's work, the work that they were producing, that the young people's work should form a to-do list for world leaders. And that's exactly what Never Such Innocence is about. It's about 
providing important platforms for, the, for these young voices to be heard because they have as much right as anybody else to share reflections on conflicts that do impact their lives. Uh, and I'm delighted actually to set to, to you know, as a res- following on from, from that wonderful quote, we've actually had letters of recognition for our young people from Prime Minister of Canada, Australia, Greece, German president. Um, it's had a huge global impact. And these young voices are being taken very, very seriously. So young voices, perhaps innocent, but also really insightful. And, mm. you know, the idea that they're they're preparing a to-do list for world leaders is, is a really wonderful takeaway from this project. I think we, we definitely want to talk a little more about the kind of impact that you were hoping to have with this project, the kind of impact you got. Before we do this, I just wanted to ask about the competition again, because you said that, you know, this started as a as a competition and you received so many entries. So I suppose I have a bit of a, a practical question. How do you process all those entries and what were you looking for and what kind of prizes did you give out? I understand there was uh, some monetary prizes involved, but also the chance to take take part in some uh, commemoration ceremonies and uh, things like this. So could you tell us a bit more about how that competition worked? Yes, absolutely. When, when the entries come in, it's a it's a huge labour of love. Our team are extraordinarily dedicated in um, logging absolutely every entry that comes in. We have teams of shortlisters in partner organisations, friends uh, do shortlisting for us, which is brilliant and very very much appreciated especially when we have thousands and thousands of works coming in and then we have judging final judging so our judges work extraordinarily hard reading looking at listening to absolutely everything that comes comes uh, across their desk there's a lot of deliberation quite a bit of argument occasionally it gets quite heated (laughs) I'm not a judge I'm far too close to the project to do that I have my favorites sometimes and so don't let my bias get in the way but the the judging process is actually one um, that I I find incredibly rewarding to watch um, because there as I said there's a lot of debate and discussion an analysis of the work that comes in. Uh, and it's wonderful, actually, to, 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 to recognise that. The thing that I think is important is absolutely every young person that participates in the programme receives a personalised certificate of commendation for what they've done. Um, by putting pen to paper, by thinking about conflict, um, they have done something important. And, I, and, I, uh, and we've always, always put it at our core that, 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 that every young person is valued for the contribution that they're making. We, have, we used to have prize money. We don't actually anymore, but we used to have prize money, which was interesting. I mean, I thought it, was a, I thought it would have been a great incentive. And when we stopped doing prize money, I was concerned. I was, really, I was genuinely worried that it would have an impact. And I'm delighted to say that it had no impact at all. In fact, we were receiving more entries following that. So that, so it was, so that was great. That was really interesting. Um, we did a survey uh, towards the end of the centenary project asking why young people, why schools and communities had engaged in the project. Was it sort of A, because it was the centenary of the First World War, B, because it was an international project? And the overwhelming response, surprising to all of us, was that it was an international project. Um, so I found, I found that very revealing. I thought that was very interesting. In terms of special recognition and so the participation of our young people in special events has always been something that's very important to us. And we've worked very, very hard to ensure that our young people receive 
extraordinary moments that will hopefully stay in their mind for many, many years to come. Um, we were delighted to team up with Royal Navy for the Battle of Jutland commemorations, uh, which was fantastic. We had children at South Queensferry. We had children on Orkney having the most wonderful time meeting um, the Princess Royal, meeting Nicola Sturgeon, Duke of York really was a very, very special moment for all the children involved in those commemorations. We we were delighted to take part in the Passchendaele 100 activities in Belgium. We brought uh, children from the UK over and we also had some Belgian children together, coming together and sharing the poetry to a live audience. And they were then presented to uh, the Prince of Wales, then uh, the then Prime Minister, Theresa May. We've done all sorts of things. In fact, we had four... Um, for, the, for our finale, we had RAF 100. We had some children take, actually taking part in the fly past over Buckingham Palace. So we really try and find things that will make our young people feel as special as they possibly can. Uh, we have an award ceremony every year. Sadly, we couldn't have one last year and won't be having one this year as a result of the pandemic. But usually we have a very important, very special award ceremony for young people. We invite children from all over the world to attend. And we, we, we do have children flying in from right, right the way around the world, Malaysia, um, America, Greece, Romania, all, all over the world, um, which is great. Um, and we, we pull out absolutely all the stops to make the young people feel that they are as important as they are. And often, I think one of the things that really strikes me when we talk to young people is they, and, and, to, and to their families is that they say um, things like this don't happen to people like us. But they do and they are. And that's really important. I think it's, it's, it's vital that particularly in today's world that our young people recognise that there should be no boundaries to what they can achieve. That sounds extraordinary. So one of you, you know, the the involvement in the project doesn't just end with them submitting an uh, an entry and and hearing back with a letter of commendation. It's this sense that you're opening up a dialogue, and I think one of the wonderful things about this is that it's grown so that it is really international. So obviously, you said you started in England, you started with the Great War. But you're getting children engaging from, I think, now something like 92 countries in the latest competition. Is that right? Yes. So what we're actually we're now up to it's a fast moving project. We're up to 99 countries this year um, and 104 countries in total. Um, during the four years of the centenary, we reached young people in 47 countries. And so, yes, we're delighted that 99. I mean, I can't believe really that in, in one year, We've received entries, entries from children in 99 countries around the world. It does seem quite extraordinary, but highlights how important young people think their reflections on conflict are. And they have some really, really important things to say. And as I say, this sense that you're not just bringing them together in a kind of inert space, but you're actually allowing Belgian and, and British children, for example, to talk to each other and speak across certain divides. You know, when I was growing up, uh, my my all my education about the Great War, for example, was was purely from a British perspective. There's there wasn't any kind of dialogue. So this is a really interesting and important part of the project. And of course, you're not any longer just focusing, asking people to focus on the Great War. Is that right? Yeah, no, absolutely. So at the end of 2018, um, at the end of the centenary, we were going to um, pack up and go home. Our job was done. Um, 
uh, and we had a big finale at Buckingham Palace, which was wonderful. So children from around the world came and were recognised at a tea party there. Um, our schools and our communities invited us. They asked us if we would continue. And we did. A, so we did a year long consultation, um, really asking our beneficiaries what they wanted to look at, what they wanted to address. And the overwhelming um, response was that they wanted to look at conflict more broadly. And so we shifted our focus to give children and young people a voice on conflict more broadly. So that launched in 2019. And we invited children to really reflect on personal family stories relating to conflict, um, refugees fleeing from their homes, all the feelings of service children with a parent deployed. And um, it was, it, it became a lot broader. We produced resources reflecting on anything from the Punic Wars, the Irish War of Independence, the partition of British India, to the fall of the Berlin Wall. We were really trying to open up conflict to get as many responses as we possibly could. And I, I think it's interesting that we invite children to consider why conflict starts and how it starts. I mean, we've learned a huge amount in the last couple of years on how children perceive conflict and what they think. We've always tried to define conflict in terms of a war and, and getting a 21st century view from young people on that is very, very interesting. And we've had some very, very um, emotive topics that we hadn't even considered. I guess up to a point that also chimes with some of the experiences Alice and I had when we were setting up this project, because one of the questions we, we got very often is, uh, how do you define war? And, you know, are we really talking about war? And we were deliberately taking a very broad view of, of what we mean by war and conflict. So that, that had a lot to do with conflict outside of the battlefield. It had a lot to do with conflict before any kind of full-blown war, however you want to define it, um, started. And I think, I mean, to us, this sort of flexible approach makes a lot of sense simply because the, the boundaries between these different forms of conflicts, I mean, they're, they're of course extremely fluid and uh, a, a small local conflict or even a small personal conflict can lead to something much bigger. So these things are all interconnected in, you know, in my view. Yes, no, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think the, the breadth of work that we've seen over the last two years has been quite extraordinary. And, and actually, I, I think highlights how informed our young people are today. I think with social media, they're exposed to so much more of what is happening in the world around them. And they are very passionate and, and very keen to support other young people in other countries, which I, which I found you know, fantastic. I mean, we had a, a wonderful picture depicting um, a child in Afghanistan. And um, when we looked to see where, where this entry had come from, It should come from a child in Belarus. So I think it's, it's, it's just fascinating to see the concern, the concern that young people have for, for their fellow children and, and young people. And obviously we've had, we, we debated quite long and hard about whether we would involve, um, we would include COVID-19 COVID as a sort of topic that we, we wanted young people to tackle in, the, in this year, the sort of 2021 competition. And we decided that we would do it. We would include it um, because you know, so many people, including world leaders, had said we are at war you know, with this pandemic, with, this, with COVID. And so we did. We got extraordinary reflections on how life had changed around the world for young people as a result of the pandemic. Again, that, that, that's something we are very interested in, the, 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 the question of war as a metaphor and the way in which um, you, you, know, you have these deep-seated ways in which war 
makes us think about issues, which then also conditions our responses to those issues. So this idea of war as metaphor is a way of telling an, a narrative about contemporary events in certain terms and thinking of events that are happening as war that's just as important as it is to think about actual wars or, or conflicts, because that's, that's the sort of feedback loop that's important to us as well, the way in which thinking about things in certain terms then you know, makes us act in certain ways. If I can just come in there as well, I think what, what you're saying about these, some of the definitions of conflict, I think, for example, you, you've had entries that depict knife crime as part of conflict and so on. Some of the definitions have surprised you and, and taught you things. And it's, I just think it's really fascinating that a project that started with the Great War, which is, I think, where most of us get our first impression of what war looks like, what war is, what it does to people. That's our sort of our go-to kind of coordinate for understanding war. And what you're saying is that the entries that have come in subsequently on all sorts of different kinds of conflict are, are really have the power to teach us new things about how we visualize conflict, how we understand war, how we understand why it starts, how we understand what happens in it, and in fact, what the consequences and the impacts of it are. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think, I, I mean, the 2020-21 competition um, invited young people to reflect on unheard voices of conflict stories from around the world. And, and that's exactly what we got. I mean, we had many references to the Rohingya, Uyghur, COVID, school shooting, the violence we've seen in Hong Kong, but also local, very localised issues. We had... Um, we had a series of entries about the farmers farming struggles in India, which in that community is, is a conflict. We've had obviously a number of extraordinarily powerful works reflecting on knife crime and gang violence. One, one that particularly springs to mind, we were doing one of our road shows. Um, we, we, we tour the United Kingdom doing a series of road shows each year when we can sadly we haven't been able to do that for the last year but when we can we do we were doing a road show in Warwickshire and we were at Sutton Veeney we were at a wonderful house in a very tranquil setting and we'd invited as many young people from local schools as we could and we had the local MP we had the Lord Lieutenant we had a, a really wide-ranging collection of members of the community and one young boy stood up on the stage and started to recite his poem, which we hadn't had sight of before. And it, it took us all absolutely by surprise. I mean, it was the most extraordinary thing. And I thought I'd just like to share perhaps the first stanza of yeah. this young man's poem. It's called, We'll Find Hope in the Morning. Society is shattered, humanity is lost. On the scales of lady justice, does the gain outweigh the cost? The safety of the people for which the fearless fighters fought, the souls that fell in Flanders' fields, is this what they fell for? They fought for all our futures, believing Britons shall never be slaves. Is this the greatest Britain that they gave their lives to save? There's no infantry on our streets, but infants armed with knives. Should the children in our classrooms be prepared to lose their lives? Rejected, scared and lonely, a child the age of nine, Death accepts him warmly, another victim of knife crime. That's the first stanza of what is a really powerful poem. And I have to say, I think there were 200 people in the room and there was absolute silence. I mean, this young man had summarised 
what he'd witnessed in his own community so acutely and so and, and so well. I mean, we're constantly overwhelmed by the work that does come in. Well, I found that quite overwhelming. I've got tears in my eyes after listening <laughs> just to the first stanza of that. Mm, and again, mm. I think it's a really interesting lesson in storytelling because he's respun a story about what people died for, giving their lives sacrifice to think with a new way in a new way through a new lens about how we redefine how we understand how we visualize conflict and you know just that's that's incredible as you say incredibly powerful incredibly insightful and and very very moving mm -hmm. so really incredible and and uh, um again um listeners to the podcast will be able to read the whole of that poem on the visualizing war blog um that accompanies this episode I continue to be fascinated by the by the creative power that uh, thinking about war sort of unleashes in these in, in you know in all the participants, but also in the in the way in which war and in this particular case World War One has itself a a creative power of sorts to make us think through you know things that we are experiencing and and help us process those. Um, there are so many fascinating sides to to this project. I'm. Uh, I mean, I think I think one of the things that we found we found interesting actually as a result of the pandemic is having to take our work online and therefore opening up the competition even even further than we've ever done before. I mean, we've been doing Zoom workshops with children in schools in in um, Armenia, for example, an extraordinary um, body of workers come in from from that particular school, really reflecting on, on what their lives are like and how they perceive conflict. And actually, we're looking at, at having a sort of exhibition of those works because they are just so telling. I mean, I think it is constantly sort of inspiring to see young people really wanting to share their reflections and through some very powerful means and as you said the one of the things that this year's competition in particular has been about is unheard voices of conflict and that opening up and that accessibility so that you can you know reach schools in Armenia but you can also bring back their work very much part of that sort of that momentum to keep amplifying these unheard voices of conflict it's something which our visualizing more project is is really interested in it's the it's it's decentering some of the very dominant voices that yeah that have kind of conditioned our habits of visualizing war um, and what's emerging when you amplify these unheard voices is, you know, is really, really interesting and, and quite revolutionary in some ways. You've just mentioned as well the different media. And that's, again, something that the Visualising War Project is very interested in, the emotional power, but also perhaps the limitations that different kinds, different forms of narrative have when they come to representing war, how art perhaps communicates differently from a novel, for example. So one thing that I'm very interested in is that rather late in the day you've added in speech making alongside poetry and art and song and it would just be interesting to hear what difference that has made what your reasons were but also has it um has it triggered different kinds of response in some of your entrants i think we've noticed yes we absolutely have noticed different takes on conflict in the different art forms we included speech writing so for the new project for giving children and young people a voice on conflict we changed the age range from 9 to 16 to 9 to 18 because we were dealing with more contemporary issues that we thought would 
perhaps pique the interest of that 16 to 18 year age group a little more. And speeches have had the power to change the world since the beginning of time. And we wanted to give our young people the opportunity to have that power to create speeches that could influence and change the world in some way. We have received extraordinarily powerful, wonderful oratory, wonderful that we can now share it, you know, easily. Young people can record what they have to say, send it to us, and we can amplify that voice right the way around the world, which has been wonderful. And I think you, we were very lucky. We've been very fortunate um, in London, um, where we're based. We were able to take um, school groups into the Foreign Office and the Cabinet Office to have speechwriting workshops with the senior speechwriters in those two Whitehall departments. And so having um, one, one of our speechwriters who was supporting the children had written for world leaders, you know, Barack Obama. They did the speeches for Barack Obama. I mean, what inspiration for young children I mean we had I think I think the age range we had was about uh, age 12 sitting in the cabinet office hearing from a speechwriter that were written for Obama and it was fascinating to see how inspired and passionate these children were and the and the work that they ended up producing it was just it was great uh, and so we're delighted to have included that outlet I mean I think we want to just create as much opportunity for young people to reflect as they possibly can and if they don't feel that art is for them they have other avenues to explore. Speech making is really interesting I think for me and Nicholas in particular because as ancient historians what we're familiar with in ancient history writing, but also um, ancient drama, is the way in which speeches often form a really important part of a battle narrative, a, a traditional ancient battle narrative in terms of building up momentum, inspiring troops to go into battle and so on. And so it's really fascinating to see you taking that form and giving it to children and, and seeing what they do with it. Well, I mean, I think it is. It's giving those, that, those children that sort of rallying cry to come and support and, and our resources and we have we, we sort of encourage children to and young people to use our resources to look at the stories of the Punic Wars for example if we're, when we're talking about ancient history to reflect on how people have mobilized and inspired armies be they for the good or, or not so good and, and I think looking to history is, is a really important part of our understanding of the future. And that's something that we always want to try and do is to encourage young people to learn from the past to better form a brighter future. It's one of the things that we are quite interested in as well, this sort of um, deep history, the way in which, you know, the, the way in which we talk about conflicts today or more recent conflicts kind of reaches back to earlier conflicts, even into antiquity. I find it really interesting to see how you can see this, the, this, this process, this engagement uh, with the deep history, with the conflicts of the past kind of played out live in this, pro in this project, because normally, obviously, we as, as historians, we're often limited to studying reception that's already there. But here we're looking at a process that's ongoing. And, you know, we, we see the thought formation, the, the way in which the, you know, the, the creativity comes out of this. And for us, that's really quite a new, new angle, I think, to, to, to what we're doing in the project. Yeah, well, absolutely. And I, I mean, I do think that conflict has been a constant state since the beginning of time and sadly will probably continue to be so because we are human 
it is part of who we are as humans to fight. But having a greater understanding of why we might do that, I think, is a, is a great tool for our custodians of the future. And I think the thing that has really struck me, certainly in the last year, is that the work we're receiving is an extraordinary social commentary. It is the history of the future. People will study, I hope, the work that our young people are producing now to understand how people are reflecting and thinking about life in the 21st century, their views on contemporary conflict, but also their views on historical conflict. I think it's fascinating. And I think the more that we can bring communities and young people together, better it is. Uh, so we do, we have a lot of projects into sort of into country projects. We've just done something. We're about to do some more work with young people in Germany and the UK. We had one of our young people was invited to go to the Bundestag um, for German Remembrance Day last year in 2020 to give a a keynote speech at the Bundestag on her hopes and fears for the future and reflecting on the the 75th anniversary of the end of the Second World War. And what an opportunity for a 17 year old young girl. Amazing, really, to she um, and uh, because due to the pandemic, she ended up really delivering her speech to an empty Bundestag, empty except for the President of Germany and the Prince of Wales. So if you were going to have an audience, quite a wonderful audience to have. And I think the other thing that we haven't, I haven't sort of talked about too much, which I'd like to um, reflect on, is the roadshows, the national roadshows that we do. And I think that's a really important part of what we do, because we talk about giving young people a voice. But this is really giving young people a voice in action. We invite children to come to extraordinary, very special locations where they may not have access in in normal times. Um, We invite the great and the good of the community, local MP, Lord Lieutenant, High Sheriff, faith leaders, senior members of the armed forces to come and hear what and hear and see what the children have to say and have to share. And so really putting those children on an important platform and that works incredibly well it you know and it, and i think it really does impact everybody the young people that are sharing their reflections but also the audience i think it has a profound effect on the audiences who who um, are present and hear what they've got to say and so, so that's a really vital part of what we do that's that's a perfect cue for me to circle back to something that we were talking about briefly uh, earlier on and that's the question of the impact um it's it's become very clear that obviously yes you have all these uh, the children participating but there are a lot of adults involved there are a lot of adults in leading positions involved these uh, the voices of the children the the young people participating they're heard and uh, you mentioned uh, Boris Johnson who said that this should be a program for for future leaders uh, or for the leaders of today even so one of the things I'd I'd love to hear more about is this the sort of impact that that you envisaged at the beginning that you might have with this and the impact you're really having and do you have examples of a sort of a tangible difference uh, also in terms of policy making so how how does this play out this the the other side the reception side of the project yeah well in terms of impact i had no idea that uh, never such innocence would grow and have the reach that it does and i think i always say and have always said that the success of never such innocence is down to the young people that participate in the program if they weren't choosing to reflect and to share what they had to say we wouldn't be here and so they are giving us all a great gift uh, in their reflections and I think I mean I'm, I'm sitting here actually looking at some of the work that's come in this year 
uh, and it is so powerful and so emotive and so emotionally intelligent that I think it, it, it creates lessons for us all, really. I just hope that we can continue to inspire generations to reflect on conflict. Our next year's theme is going to be life after conflict. So inviting um, young people from around the world to consider what that means, what that might mean in their community, um, what that might mean for their peers around the world. I'm always delighted and excited to see what our young people are going to do because it is always exceptional. I think that idea that the, the next theme is going to be life after conflict is 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 really a, a, a sort of a good example of what you're doing, really stretching our understanding of conflict, helping young people stretch their understanding of conflict, but then giving them the opportunity to continue stretching our understanding of conflict as well. The Visualising War Project, um, we, we've got a podcast coming up soon with an Iraqi artist who's herself very, very interested in making the point that some people don't get to go home from a war. Sometimes wars don't end. The conflict continues. There is a long, slow suffering. There are long ripples and repercussions that carry on that people live through. So the idea that there's a homecoming and a victory and some kind of closure is actually more of a fantasy than a reality. So I'm really excited to see what art and song and speech making and poetry comes in response to that, that new theme for next year. Yes, just this idea that you're not only giving people a voice, but you're giving them an audience. Um, and an audience of people who might then go away and think again and make decisions, whether at a low level or at a high level, about how they engage in and how they imagine and understand conflict. Uh, it's, it's incredibly important work. One of the things I was quite interested in hearing more about um, is also the in involvement of the armed forces, because I understand you collaborate quite a lot with representatives of the armed forces. And on your website, you also have a statement from, uh, from an officer. And uh, obviously, there are children involved as well. And um, I think you mentioned them earlier also. So can you tell us a bit more about the, the, the way in which the, the project is engaging with the armed forces and in particular with the children of members of the armed forces? Yes, absolutely. We've worked with the armed forces right from the outset of the project, and we felt, felt that, that was a very they were very important partners to have, and they have been fantastically supportive. I have to say, I have been to more RAF bases, more army garrisons, more, and, <laughs> and I've been aboard more warships than I ever thought I would in my lifetime. But it has been an extraordinary experience bringing children, civilian children, To, le to learn a little bit more about what our armed forces do for us today and have done for us historically. Having spent the last sort of four years working very closely with the armed forces during the centenary, we recognized that we were talking very much to civilian children when actually we, we weren't focusing as much on um, service children and what service life was like for them. We were articulating to civilian children what it was like to deploy, to be away, but we weren't thinking too much about what it was like if you were a service child and your mother or father were about to deploy or, or had been away for a long time with little contact or indeed were wounded, injured or sick. And so we developed the uh, a sort of strand of our project called the Voices of Armed Forces Children. And that has been a fantastic experience. 
to, to really see it coming together and getting off the ground. And actually the impact it is having is, is, a, is tremendous. It, it really is. It's, um, we're hearing from service families that it may be the first time that they've ever sat around the table as a family to talk about what service life is like for them. And the, the work that the children are producing is really incredibly poignant. And I think actually really beneficial for those children to have an opportunity to just reflect on and share what it is like, because it is such an unusual way of living. Um, if, you're, if your mother or father are, are away for, on a six month tour, your, your civilian peer wouldn't have absolutely no concept of what that felt like. And so we've been doing a lot of work um, with all, all services, really delivering workshops um, online, which has been great, really powerful. I think one of the really interesting things that we did with the armed forces quite recently, pre-pandemic, but quite recently, was inviting children to come to the Ministry of Defence main building to share their reflections on conflict. We had not particularly service children in this instance, but we had young people that were at the um, Army Foundation School in Harrogate, for example, re- reflect sharing their reflections on conflict with, you know, some of the service chiefs. So it was it was a fascinating opportunity for young people to come into a very secure building and to have a, that platform to share what they were thinking. In terms of the service children, so I'd really like to share a poem from one of our service children. His name is Jacob, and he wrote a poem called "This Is Normal for Me." I would just mention that his father is a serving submariner. This is normal for me, but some people don't know how it feels. It can get rough sometimes. Children tease because I'm different. Dad is not there. I watch the sea for him. I stand still and stare. This is normal for me, but it might be different if you stayed around a lot. Christmas, birthdays, holidays, New Year's, when we have been apart. Missing someone so much, I have no words for being so sad. Separation and silence. This is normal for me, counting days until you are gone. No mark on the calendar to count down your return. You had to leave me in hospital. I knew you had to go. You do such a good job and you are hurting too, I know. This is normal for me. It would help if you knew how it feels. To feel special, to be part of my family and community. Every time I see you, I am filled with such joy. You're important to me. You're important to everybody, our country. I still watch the sea. This is normal for me. So that's by 10-year-old Jacob, which I think is an extraordinary insight into what service life can be like. We also have a fantastic range of poetry, art and song and speech that reflects on how proud service children are of parents the wonderful and important job that they do and so I think it's fascinating just to give those children that focus we focus a lot on service personnel and veterans uh, and and less on the children and the impact a service life has on those young people and so we are delighted to be doing the project and we're delighted to be working with UCL and the King Edward VII Hospital to do a research project on the um impact of the Voices of Armed Forces Children program on service families because I think I think it's absolutely critical that we support our young service people as much as we can. So and that research project's looking into the well-being impact the kind of mental health impact 
of your project. And that that poem by Jacob is is uh, you know it really captures I think one of the things that you're doing for them with this project, allowing them to express their experience, allowing them to own it, to say it out loud, and to say this is normal. It's something that I think, you know, many of them won't have had space or an opportunity to articulate, to own in a sense, to recognize as being theirs, not just mum and dad's or not just someone else's. So again, you know, part of your impact really sort of rippling out to empower, but also give audience as well as give voice to, to these young people. Yes, no, well, it does do. Yes, we're always delighted and very proud of what our young people produce. To me, it's incredible how a, a young boy who has not had any formal training in, 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 in writing poetry can produce such an accomplished piece of writing. It's absolutely incredible. <laughs> Obviously, we, we study literature that's been kind of highly sort of rhetorically styled, has a lot of training behind it. And then you see poetry that is really extraordinarily accomplished and it's written by 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 children who've never had this kind of training it's uh, i'm absolutely uh, yeah i'm absolutely flabbergasted by that well i think i mean i think that's the extraordinary thing i mean, the, the the some of the poetry is is brilliant absolutely brilliant i i certainly couldn't do anything like that <laughs> i wish i could and it's true of the art i've been looking at as well uh, you know again really accomplished but really thought provoking so it's not simply that it's technically accomplished but that the conception that the ideas behind it the story the complicated story that children want to tell or young people are trying to tell mm. through their art is is quite mind-blowing not simply the, the the execution of it yeah they do both I mean they really do they are extraordinary storytellers um, but are also extraordinarily accomplished as you say I mean I we're sort of often bowled over by the by the quality of the work that we receive which is one of the reasons we you know we publish their work because it deserves to be published it is it is exceptional absolutely so one of the key themes of of this project of this this podcast today really is narrative and impact you know giving a voice and and the the, the impact that voice has on the people who are given the voice but also on uh, all the people of all different ages who are listening to that voice. And obviously that's something that's very dear to our project, This uh, what we like to call the feedback loop in a way. That's something you, your project uh, illustrates so beautifully. Can I just ask about the, uh, your next project again as a sort of uh, outlook on what's next? Uh, you mentioned you already have something in the pipeline. You're already planning a project on life after conflict. Could you just uh, tell us and our listeners a little more about that? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think we're we're sort of con con sort of concluding a sort of a series of analysis of conflict, and as part of that, I think it's important that we invite our young people for next year to reflect on what life is life after conflict, and and also paths to peace, how communities make peace, how war comes to an end, and how how you live with an ongoing conflict. We're launching that this September. And it will run right the way through until March 2022. I think one of the things that we are keen to hear is the voices of as many young people as possible from around the world. We feel that having had such an impact in terms of reach so far, we want to reach further. We want to hear more, vo more voices. I mean, I think it's been very informative, actually, since launching the Giving Young Children a Voice on Conflict program, just to see 
the sheer scale of what young people want to say. And, and, and we just want to keep building on that and hearing more and more so that we can create a historical reference to where we are in society today. And I think, you know, we've, we've absolutely got the bones of something that will provide the most powerful social commentary moving forward. And so I'm very excited about what we're going to see. And then we will be embarking on our next three-year programme, starting in 2022-23, looking at another aspect of conflict, which I shall tell you about another time. But it's just important that we keep going and we keep hearing these voices and we keep allowing young people to have their voices heard. They are very, very important. I already see another podcast interview on the horizon. (laughs) Absolutely. It's clear that, you know, Never Such Innocence will keep growing because it's so important, because it's doing such important work. And you've mentioned a couple of times the fact that you're building up this incredible archive of material, which could be the subject of a research project in itself, but also actually the subject of some amazing exhibitions. I would hope in the future it would be wonderful to give more people access to these young voices on conflict. Because one of the things that I think I've really learned from talking to you today is the way in which these young voices on conflict are really challenging, questioning, and sort of making us rethink our habits of visualizing war. They've really got a lot to say to help us reframe what we think conflict looks like through what they think conflict looks like. And, you know, this the fact that you're heading towards Paths to Peace as well. Again, incredibly powerful piece of work and giving children a say on Paths to Peace is, you know, as you said at the start, I think, of the podcast, these are the, you know, the future generation. These are the warriors or the peace campaigners or the activists or the conflict resolution people of the future. So you're really empowering them, empowering them to speak to adults now, but to become the the decision makers in future. Lucy, it has been such a pleasure having you on our podcast. Thank you very much for introducing our listeners to Never Such Innocence and giving us so much to think about. I want to remind listeners that you can learn more about this amazing project by visiting the website www.neversuchinnocence.com and It's a charity, and as a charity, they're always trying to raise funds to support the very important work they do. So if you have been inspired by what you've heard today, please do look at their How to Support section on the website. I'm sure you'll agree it's an incredibly good cause. A big thank you also from me, Lucy, and uh, thank you to our listeners for joining us again. Do keep tuning in to the Visualizing War podcast. Next time, we will be talking to artist Diana Forster, who shares with Lucy and us a deep interest in the different ways in which art can help us uncover the unheard voices of war and conflict. If you'd like to support our project, please share and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or whatever platform you use so you don't miss an episode. And please do leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It helps people find the show. If you'd like to join the conversation further, you can follow us on social media, just search for Visualising War, or get in touch directly by emailing us at viswar at standrews.ac.uk. And you can find our website on the School of Classics website at the University of St Andrews. Our theme music was composed by Jonathan Young. The show was mixed by Sophia Gertin. Thank you for listening.